I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 46, Pope Sixtus Third. Um, did I forget we had a second Sixtus? We definitely did have a second Sixtus. He's the one who got his head chopped off while he was sitting in his papal throne in the catacombs. Sixtus was our first second, and he's also our first third. So, actually, at this point, he is the only pope name that we've had as a repeat, unless you count the adipose, because there was a Felix II. The Sixtusai also have something else in common. They are all short popes with little to talk about. Hopefully this one isn't beheaded. No, no, he won't be beheaded, but I will say that his short episode, yes, this is going to be a short episode this week, but... That is a bit of a blessing in disguise, because it freed me up to spend more time on our next episode, which, prepare yourselves, is going to be the most whopping whopper episode that we have done so far. So if you're feeling a little, like, cheesed off this week that you got a short episode, we will more than make up for it next week. Yeah, you've warned me that we're going to have to double record for it, so that's going to be, like, maybe three hours. It is, like, more than double the notes on any other Pope that I have had so far. So, prepare yourself. But that is not this week. (laughs) We're just setting up all the sizzle for next week. We need to talk about Sixtus III first. Okay. So, Sixtus was born in Rome, and his father's name was Sixtus. (laughs) Clearly, this is like the Mark or John or Dave of the early 80s. <laughs> so We know that he had a church career of at least 14 years because he was already considered a prominent member of the clergy by the time of Zosimus, which means he also served through the papacies of Boniface and Celestine. And like his predecessor, Sixtus was known to be an active correspondent with Augustine. Our buddy, our pal. Well, their pal. But in Sixtus's case, he is in contact with Augustine for potentially entirely different reasons. This time, it's because it was thought that before he came to the papacy, Sixtus might have been a supporter or even a patron of Pelagius. <gasps> no, Pelagianism. <laughs> it's it's back. Poor poor monk Pelagius might have had one friend in the clergy of Rome. At least, this is a theory proposed by a 17th century church historian Jean Gagnier and Peter Brown, who is a modern historian who focuses on religious culture in the end of the Roman Empire. So, perhaps he was a supporter of Pelagius, and perhaps this is why he and Augustine started to correspond. As we know, Augustine took on the Pelagians like it was his personal mission, and he would likely try to, like, zealously persuade any presbyter in Rome that started to show sympathies for the poor heretics. But Alban Butler, one of our favorite sources as the author of The Lives of the Saints, disagrees and says it was only because Sixtus had an extremely conciliatory personality and approach to church administration that he ends up being accused of favoring heretics. In his segment on Sixtus, he says, 
quote, He was a priest among the Roman clergy in 418 when Pope Zosimus condemned the Pelagian heretics. Sixtus was the first, after this sentence, who pronounced publicly anathema against them to stop their slander in Africa that he favored their doctrine, as we are assured by St. Austin and St. Prosper in his chronicle. The former sent him two congratulatory letters in the same year, in which he applauds this testimony of his zeal, and in the first of these letters professes a high esteem of a treatise written by him in defense of the grace of God against its enemies. It was that calumny of the Pelagian heretics that led Garnier into this mistake, that our saint at first favored their errors. He very much disagrees with this whole supporter of Pelagian thing. We also get a little more clarity on this issue in the actual letters written to Sixtus by St. Augustine, like Epistle 191, which reads, quote, For if, when you sent a very short letter, we read it with enthusiastic interest to all who were within our reach, as an exposition of your sentiments, both in regard to that most fatal dogma of Pelagius, and in regard to the grace of God freely given by him to small and great, to which that dogma is diametrically opposed. How great, think you, is the joy with which we have read this more extended statement in your writing? How great the zeal with which we take care that it be read by all to whom we have been able already or may yet be able to make it known! For what could be read or heard with greater satisfaction than so clear a defense of the grace of God against its enemies? from the mouth of one who was before this proudly claimed by these enemies as a mighty supporter of their cause? So, in this, we can definitely see that the rumor of Sixtus's support for the Pelagians was in fact a contemporary rumor. It existed in his own time, and some people did think that this was true about Sixtus. However, clearly Sixtus wrote some sort of declaration of faith to Augustine which gained his enthusiastic approval. So the idea of him actually genuinely supporting the Pelagians is probably not very accurate. And we see the truth of this actually play out after Sixtus is elected to be the new pope on July 31st of 432, because during his papacy, Sixtus actively prevents known Pelagianists to be readmitted to the church for communion. And this is most clearly demonstrated in the case of Julian of Eclanum, who had been a bishop of Eclanum, which is now Benevento in Italy, by Pope Innocent before he became a sympathizer and supporter of Pelagianism. He had outed himself as a Pelagian when Pope Zosimus had reopened the condemnation against Pelagius and Celestius and had argued pretty hard in their favor in a way that he couldn't backtrack from once the Pelagians had been recondemned. So that's another person that Zosimus's rash and uninformed decision had hurt. As a result, he was deposed from his position as bishop, and so he joined with the Pelagians full on, writing directly against Augustine, which led him being exiled from the West. We're not going to get into his whole life story, but from here on in, he becomes one of the most prominent and influential leaders of the Pelagians, who nevertheless continued to petition to successive popes to reconsider the case against them. He was rejected and re-exiled by Celestine, 
But when he heard the new Pope Sixtus III might be a supporter of the Pelagians, he reached out to the Pope, hoping for, like, reconciliation and restoration. And what he got instead was a very blunt and firm rejection. So, no communion for Julian. But blunt rejections were not going to be the way that Sixtus wanted the rest of his papacy to look. The conciliatory personality that we mentioned before was definitely a more accurate picture of his character, and he wanted to promote peace and unity wherever he could reasonably do so and not gain a reputation for being like a supporter of the Pelagians and heretics. And the one place where this reconciliation was sorely needed was in the division that had been created at the Council of Ephesus between Cyril of Alexandria and John of Antioch that we discussed last week. Brief recap, if you're listening to these two episodes far apart. The Council of Ephesus was called primarily to deal with the condemnation of Nestorius and his ideas of the two independent natures slash persons of Christ and the denial of Mary as the God-bearer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because of all the holdups with the different church delegations trying to get to Ephesus, Cyril had jumped the gun and gone ahead to start the proceedings before the Roman and Antiochian legates had arrived. And when they did arrive, John of Antioch was so livid that they hadn't waited, so he held a secondary conciliabum and ordered a condemnation of Cyril. And then the Roman legates had arrived and joined Cyril's council, which issued a condemnation against John in retaliation. Both excommunications were rejected by the emperor, but the two men were absolutely at odds with each other from this moment. And this is nothing good for the church. Antioch and Alexandria have been the foremost hearts of the church under the Church of Rome, louder and more influential than Jerusalem, which has special status but is generally quite quiet, and longer than Constantinople, which is only really now coming into prominence. So these two cannot stay at odds with one another like this. The church needs to be unified in order to answer all of these orthodoxy questions that are going to come up. So Sixtus gets involved right away. He declares that the decisions of the Council of Ephesus, as determined by the council presided over Cyril, will be upheld, except for the condemnation of John and the Antiochian bishops. Instead, he worked towards a formal reconciliation between the two men based on professions of doctrinal faith that both men could agree on. Cyril relented on some of his doctrinal hardlines, and the Antiochians were able to come to peace on July 31st, 433. The document that both Cyril and John signed to cement their reconciliation would be called the Formula of Reunion, and we'll definitely be coming back to this in bits when we get to the Council of Chalcedon in about 20 years from this time. So these two men have been fighting and having it out with one another. And he goes, hey, you guys are on the same page religiously, so let's sign a document about that and make you friends again. And then, about a year and eight months into his papacy, the Liber Pontificalis tells us this. He was accused by a man called Bassus, and by the order of the Valentinian Augustus, a synod was held. And when it was convened, there was a great trial and he was acquitted by 56 bishops, and they expelled Bassus from communion, 
with the provision that at his death the viaticum should not be denied him for the sake of mercy and the compassion of the church. So the Pope was accused of something. <gasps> so what do we know about this? The man who allegedly brought these accusations against the Pope was called Flavius Anicius Alcinius Bassus, who is a high-ranking political Roman who served as consul and a Praetorian prefect. The Praetorian prefect was originally a commander of the Praetorian Guard, but had eventually become a political position that aided the emperor. What do we know about the charge? Do you want any guesses? Oh, God, you just said something. So, like, I don't know, man. Nothing. We know absolutely nothing. There are no sources that give us any actual insight into this. Like, at all. Just a nothing? Who writes down, some man charged the Pope with something? What sort of historical document writes that? <laughs> why didn't they just delete that whole sentence? Like, why even bother at this point? Because there was a synod. There was an actual synod held that had to acquit him of something. <sighs> and they didn't write down. Why didn't they write it down? <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> Well, it's the Liber Pontificalis. That's who it is. So can we go get our, when we get our time machine with our Patreon money, <laughs> we need to go yep. back and kick somebody in the face. <laughs> that will be our first stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, one book I read in part, the Basilea Essays on Imperium and Culture, subtly kind of supposes that maybe the charge had something to do with, like, the wealth obtained by the church. But only by mentioning the charges in a discussion about imperial bestowals on the church, followed by a mention that Bassus's property was given to the church after the synod acquitted the Pope. No, that's not very helpful. Like, maybe they were trying to argue that there was some kind of money-collecting corruption. But what do we know when dealing with the Liber Pontificalis, like, that we need to take away from this? It is a lying liar face. It is. It's... Always been. This whole segment is now definitely understood to be like a forgery from the 6th century. So it's very probably all fake entirely. And this maybe never even happened at all. Yeah, it, it could all be fake. So we need to double kick them in the face. Of all the church historians that we actually use reputably, only Duchenne seems to think that this accusation story might have been based on credible information. And he was writing in the very early 1900s. So this is potentially all a big tease for something that never really happened. Charged with something. It just even says, like, the actual quote is, he was accused <laughs> and a synod was held. Like, what? <laughs> There's no, like, follow-up in that sense. Yeah, I have several copies of different editions of the Liber Pontificalis. Nada. There's not a line missing or anything. That's just all they got. Perhaps he, like, sashayed too sexily in front of this person, <laughs> and he's like, you make me feel things, sir. I will accuse you. Well, that's what it is now. If he doesn't get a papal bull by the end of this episode, can we tell him to sashay away? Probably. So we have to move on, because we have a little bit more to talk about. Like, perhaps a little act of papal primacy. Perhaps? I hate that it's all like, maybe. <laughs> During Sixtus's papacy, the bishopric of Constantinople, under the leadership of Proclus, 
felt that the time was right for them to expand their influence, and a synod was called in the city to determine some sort of justification that they should have supreme rights over Illyria and over Antioch. Since Illyria was more civilly dependent on Constantinople, they felt that they should have the supreme authority in spiritual matters as well. But, as we've mentioned in pretty much every episode since it happened, Thessalonica in Illyria was the vicariate of the Pope. So, naturally, Sixtus refuses to let this one fly, and writes to all of the bishops in all of Illyria, very clearly defending his rights, and reminding them that they owed their loyalty to his direct agent, the Bishop of Thessalonica. And so, the Illyrian bishops agreed, and following the defense of the Pope, they repel Constantinople's efforts. So, this is score one for primacy of the Pope. You did it. You did the thing. Did the thing. Woohoo! This is a point in his category. We're not even too rating yet. <laughs> nope. But the one thing that Sixtus Three is really known for is the increased building boom that he initiated in Rome itself. Like we've been talking about for the last few episodes, the sack of Rome by Alaric and the Visigoths had left a lot of Rome destroyed, and though churches were the least impacted, they are still in really rough shape and in some desperate need of either a restoration or a complete rebuild. And so he does this in a really big way. He founds the Santa Sabina on the Aventine Hill, which was completed and dedicated during his papacy. He expanded the Basilica of St. Lawrence outside the walls with a secondary basilica. He decorated St. Peter's Basilica and the Lateran Basilica and the Catacombs of Calixtus with new gifts from the Emperor Valentinian III. And most importantly, he entirely rebuilt and rededicated the Liberian Basilica. After this moment, a new church on this location would be known as Santa Maria Maggiore, dedicated to Mary the Mother of God. The Major Maria. The Major Maria. And this is this is pretty timely because it is a very strong declaration of her as the Theotokos, which is, you know, the Christ bearer. Mm -hmm, instead of whatever that other guy was on. And Nestorius, yeah, exactly. So he's reinforcing the decrees of the Council of Ephesus on the ground with the Christian laity, so that if you are a low-going church member and had nothing to do with the council, you know exactly where the Pope stands anyways. You got very important Mary Church. Yeah, exactly. The Mage of Mary. I love it. I don't know why it got a little Southern, but all right. <laughs> I suppose that, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Neither do I. And then he dies. Mm. Yeah, short episode. When he dies is a bit of a debate. His papacy is always listed as having come to an end on March 28th of 440, presumably because of his death, and yet other sources mention that he died on August 18th, 440. Some even add the detail that he was 50 years old when he died, so that's something we don't get very often. But that's weird. We have no reason to believe that he abdicated or resigned the papacy, especially since the election of his successor is something covered in a lot more detail. But it gets more complicated than that. His feast day is March 28th, which is almost always associated with the saint's date of death or burial, but his successor won't be consecrated until September, which 
would suggest the August death date. So the only explanation that maybe we could explain a gap from March to September for a new pope is that his successor was in Gaul at the time of Sixtus's death. And since we're pretty much doing canon bonus round, like right here, we also have to factor in that Sixtus wasn't made a saint until the ninth century when Edo of Vienne added his name to martyrology and assigned a feast date. So March 28th could have just been a convenient place to stick him. It could have. So in the end, we really don't know what date applies more accurately or if he was 50 when he died. So he was accused of something. He built some stuff. And he, he died, died sometime. sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he died in 440 of natural causes at some point. So, you know, it doesn't really matter, but we strive to be as accurate as possible on this podcast when we can. So there's that. And now we get to rate him. Well, let's see if he beats our lowest score. Well, okay. Papatum. And Phalium. He developed the peace between John of Antioch and Cyril of Alexandria, preventing what could have easily become a full-on schism. He defended papal primacy against Constantinople when they tried to take over. He also built a bunch of churches that will stand for quite a long time and are very significant in the declaration that they're making about Mary. The only bad thing is that potentially by preventing the Pelagian leaders from returning to communion, he keeps schism and heresy going, but that's kind of feeble since they've been excommunicated, and so he's just holding the groundwork and not pulling his ozimus. It's not bad. No, it for, yeah, it's not awful. I could give him like a six or a seven. He's not breaking things down. He's kind of trying to stay the course here. I was thinking he deserves somewhere between like an 8 and a 12 overall. So I'm going to give him a 5. So roughly in the same range. And that gives him a, like an 11. And I think that works. Yeah. Fructus prohibitum. He's accused of something. 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 Is something worth a point? <laughs> One point. One single point. Yep, that's fair. No, it's only worth one thing. One thing? Well, what is that one thing? <laughs> well, we don't know. <laughs> Should we randomize his number? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we don't know what that something is. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. You can roll a... Uh, do you have a... Is there a detail? There is a D10. Oh, the only one I have next to me is metal. One sec. <laughs> it's gonna be loud. I have no qualms about randomizing his score here. Well, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> I rolled a 10. Perfect. He's getting a 10. We can't give him more than that, but we're giving him a 10. That's why I only made a D10, because, you know, halfway. It's fair. We don't, it could have been something really juicy, so. <laughs> it's something. It's something, and we've given him something for it. <laughs> Seculari impactum. I'm going to give him some credit here for the building boom, even though I put a little bit in Papatum and Phallium. I'm putting it here because not only is he restoring and rebuilding churches so that they will last for history, 
but also because rebuilding the city has a huge psychological impact for everyone who lives in Rome. It's the first step in moving away from the trauma of the original sack, so I think that is worth some secular points. Well? I'm going to give him like a three for it, though. That's where I was leaning. Okay, so he gets a six for seculari impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready to look at... Oh, no, I'm not at all. Oh, here is... Sometimes I have things to say to prep you for this, but, you know, here you go. Does he have a wart? Yeah, that could be. That is a giant wart, then. This is Oliver Cromwell style. (laughs) Woo! Does he have a growth? He looks like, um... you You know when, like, a cat... Is like half it, cats don't really smile, but when they look like they're kind of trying to, <laughs> it's like I I tolerate you. Yeah, he looks like he's tolerating somebody right now. Just kind of hmm. Okay, whatever. I don't know. Maybe maybe his nose wart had something to do with what he was accused of. Oh yeah. I don't know what, but hey, man, it's as big as his eye. It is huge. So that is distinctive. We, can... mean we should give him a point for it. Well, I mean, you you can score him however you like in this one. I'm really upset by his how just how his head goes into his tonsure as though his head is bulbous. <laughs> okay, so 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 at one point we were at a convention. My husband went outside with our friend to uh hang out outside for a minute yep and um they saw a man in a turtleneck and they decided wouldn't it be funny if people's bodies were just shaped like their clothes like (laughs) all the folds and lumps were exactly (laughs) what you got oh no and this head is exactly that (laughs) yes Yes, it is. So, what is that worth in points? <laughs> uh, maybe like a one. Okay. I was thinking low two, so I'm going to give him a two. And then that will give him a 0.75 in this category. Yeah, he is an ugly man. He is John's a very home. ugly man. You should look at how ugly this man is. It's not good. Is he looking at the ugly man? Yeah, he sure is looking at the ugly man. <laughs> the... You know, like a permanent really face? He does have a permanent really face and a giant wart. Is that a wart or is his <laughs> nose just extra big on that side? I don't know. It might be just questionable artist's rendering. It would be quite asymmetrical if that was his nose. Yeah, like he's the... got a bit of cheek nose going on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. So we have now scored him in this category, so now I can send you these other two, which look like they're wart-free. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So that's a look. I don't know, the the one that's more pale kind of has that, if he was sashaying too fiercely, that would be the man to do it. Yes. But you know what? His nose is weird in all of these. (laughs) They really are. He doesn't have, like a wart on them the same way but like the pale one his nostril something's really messed up about that nostril he's got a dog nose he's got like a double nostril in that one and then the other one's like kind of 
flat and squishy. There is no good pictures of this man. I am perfectly happy with our low score for him. The the last one he's Melton. Yeah, it's not good. Tempest Pontificus. July 31st, 432 to at least March 28th of 440. So that's eight years, giving him a score of two. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. Well, we've already kind of spoiled it. Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is March 28th. But he was not considered a saint until the 9th century when Edo of Vienne added his name to the martyrology. He is not a patron saint. No? No. So we can make him one. There's a lot of ways to go with this. Bad nose jobs. Bad nose jobs. Maybe that's what he was accused of was having a nose job and he denied it. <laughs> okay, he is the patron saint of bad nose jobs. The botched crew will be making a fortune. He, they should have a portrait of him in their office. Dr. Terry, come on, Dubrow. <laughs> this is what you need to drop. You gotta tweet him. I am gonna tweet Dr. Terry Dubrow. <laughs> Actually, no, he's not even the one who does the nose jobs. What's the other guy's name? Dr. Nassif. Come on, you do all the noses. You need a portrait of this guy so that you can invoke him against his bad nose jobs. So now we have to ask, is he papely enough? No. No? No. Oh, you're not feeling him at all. That's okay. Neither am I. His total score is surprising. It is a 30.75, that random (laughs) (laughs) describe score. Really helped him out there. Please make a note that it was (laughs) random. And not, because we're going to look at that and be like, why? Okay. Because otherwise, you know, when we look at it, we're going to be like, why does he have such a high scandal score? We can tell him now to sashay away. Get out. Well, on that note, we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we need to thank and absolve Katriana. Thank you for joining us on Patreon. Ego te absolvo. And on that note, we would like to thank, of course, Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor for supporting us in everything. And we need to also thank Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece, because he posts about our episodes every week, and uh, we need to thank him all the time. So thank you, Ryan. Every time. He is super awesome. So thank you all. And with this, we can say thank you and goodbye. Prepare for next week. Did you want to say goodbye? Yeah, sure. No. Goodbye.